Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to another Pain Talk podcast. And as promised, we're going to dig into the peer simplified decision aid around osteoarthritis. This group has done such amazing, amazing work. I'm so jealous. I know they do have some great resources. And I have talked about our academic detailers here at Dalhousie who've done some amazing work as well. And uh, when I think about the hours and hours they pour over the literature, uh, they so much smarter than I am around this stuff. To put it in a context that can be uh, used in a way that uh, helps patients and clinicians understand the benefit and allow patients to make the kinds of decisions that they need to make around treatment options. The uh, group from Alberta in the peer group seem to have it in spades. They do some great work and they have some great tools that clinicians and patients can use. So this peer simplified decision aid uh, around osteoarthritis was uh, published in March of 2020 in Canadian Family Physician. Very easy to get this article. You just go online, put in Canadian Family Physician and hit the archives and then hit March of 2020. And it is really worthwhile looking at this because the graphics are beautiful and it's a very short, sweet kind of paper. And so this one was actually developed by uh, Adrienne Lindbald and James McCormick, who uh, is a pharmacist. Christine uh, Koronik is also involved in the development of this decision aid. I think what I'm going to start with, though, because it's so interesting, and we had this previous discussion with Dr. Trudy Taylor, who's a rheumatologist, because we can get really stuck on terminology and vocabulary. So what's the difference between osteoarthritis and how does it differentiate from degenerative arthritis because they are used interchangeably. So it really depends. When I think about, you know, the training that I went through as a physician and as a nurse, you know, looking at the terminology, when you see arthritis, arth meaning joint and itis meaning inflammation. So that's a term that we often use broadly. So arthritis generally means inflammation in a joint. The reality, though, is that there are two different types of arthritis, right? There's an inflammatory and a non-inflammatory type. When I think about the most common type of inflammatory arthritis we see out there, this is rheumatoid arthritis, which is a systemic illness, most often manifests through joints. So this is an inflammatory process. The most common non-inflammatory arthritis is called osteoarthritis. And this is what's really interesting to me. So When we talk about the non-inflammatory component, when I think about degenerative arthritis, which is the same as osteoarthritis, I'm often referring to the vertebrae in our spine, right? So the facet joints, the bones in our spine, those things we often think of degenerative disease, right? Degenerative arthritis. And when we think of osteoarthritis, we're really thinking about our joints, right? So when I'm thinking about my knees, my hips, those are the kinds of things that I think about with osteoarthritis. Now, is there a form of inflammatory osteoarthritis? There is. So just to add more confusion to it, but we'll come back to that in a second. So I think that's the first thing that I want to really highlight. The inflammatory osteoarthritis that is out there typically comes on very suddenly in a middle-aged women. And generally it affects the most distal joints of their fingers. So that's the D, we call a DIP, which is the one that's closest to your fingernail. It also affects the middle joints of the finger. So it often can get confused with 
other types of inflammatory arthritis, such as rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic. But these types of arthritis involve often different joints. The form of osteoarthritis that is inflammatory tends to involve the distal DIP joint in the middle as well. It's an uncommon type of osteoarthritis. Most of the osteoarthritis is uh, around uh, non-inflammatory. Hopefully it makes a little bit of sense. So let's come back to the decision tool that they developed. And what they really wanted to do is they wanted to look at the non-operative treatment options for osteoarthritis that would help patients manage these, uh, this very common and very progressive condition that's often due to degenerative disease. So we know what the operative treatment is primarily is that they go in and replace the joint. But that's a big decision tool to have that surgery. There's so much we can do before the patient needs surgery. You'll see a lot of these perioperative clinics now who will actually screen patients and try and get them on a activity program or look at other interventions prior to having that surgery. What they did in this decision tool is they actually did a systematic review of systematic reviews. So huh, very similar to what they did with cannabinoids is that they just pulled in all the systematic reviews and then they reviewed all those systematic reviews. And they really looked at the effectiveness data of these interventions that were generated from these randomized controlled trials and compared that to active treatment and placebos. And what they did is they focused on the proportion of patients that got a meaningful reduction in their pain. And this was defined very similar to the chronic low back pain as 30% more uh, reduction in pain. Now, just to highlight the fact that in the studies that they actually looked at or the reviews that they looked at, is that specific definitions around clinically meaningful therapies or interventions varied widely across the study. So there wasn't even any consensus. But I think, you know, for a patient to get that 30% reduction, that's what's really important. And this is where I think it's so important that we're, we're establishing realistic expectations for patients around interventions because most of people are going into these therapies with the hope that they're going to get 100% reduction. Although, I mean, that's unfair. Obviously, some patients who have lived with persistent pain know that there's nothing that's going to take this away. What I want to stress again is when we're promoting some of these interventions, it's really important to look at the pain protective behaviors that patients have and what they are. So pain protective behaviors are how patients get temporary relief of their pain that is only short term, but eventually starts to create chaos in their body. So a great example is that pain tuck that we talk about. So patients when they're walking that are looking at their feet rather than looking forward. When you're looking at your feet or when you're hunched over, you're increasing the workload of your low back, your hips, your knees, and your shoulders. And I've said over and over again in these podcasts, I haven't seen a patient yet that did not develop chronic low back pain that did not eventually run into hip and knee pain because of the pain protective behaviors. So the sooner we can address these with patients in a way that helps them feel safe, very, very hard to change the hardwiring, right? Our body is always looking for relief of that pain. It's looking for calm. But the sooner you can get patients to be aware of how their body is responding and how their body is trying to protect them so that they're not getting into these wear and tear problems, the better it is for them overall. So the other thing that's important, very similar to the previously peer group analysis that we did for long chronic low back pain, they really wanted to look at these longer studies, right? So that there for 12 weeks, they wanted to compare the intervention to placebo or some sham treatment. They wanted to look at the larger studies and they wanted to lower the risk of bias scores. 
And they wanted to make sure as well that these were publicly funded and not industry-supported studies. All right. So we uh, just want to keep going here and sort of look at the decision aid itself. If we look at some of the graphics that they had, so the treatment options that they looked at for osteoarthritis pain were kind of interesting. So they looked at what kinds of therapies actually showed benefit and also that the benefit exceeded anything that was harmful the benefit likely exceeded any harm from the studies. So of course, what's way up there is that exercise again. And we talked about this in the last podcast, how to get someone with chronic pain so that they're minimizing their flare-ups to get their body moving. And so what's important for those patients is one is that the movement or the activity has to feel safe to them in a predictable way. It can be the type of activity, meaning that if you have a fear of water, getting into the pool is not a great idea. If you have problems with severe knee pain, walking is going to be very difficult unless you're supported. So that patient, if they have no fear of water, may actually benefit to getting in a pool because it's going to not only feel safer, is it's going to probably minimize their pain. So the type of activity matters. And then what you want to do is establish an an amount of time that's going to feel safe to that patient. And the only way to do that is to get the patient to check in. I'm just going to go through it again. I know we went through it last week, but it's such an important part of what we do. We want to make sure that patients have a check-in around their pain-protective behavior. So if I look at walking, it's important that the patient is looking forward. They're not looking at their feet, right? So it's a great question to ask them. When you walk, do you look at your feet or do you look ahead? The other thing that might be helpful is to get them to use some hiking sticks that make them feel safe when they're walking. So most patients that are looking at their feet are doing it because they're so afraid of falling. And that fear of falling can actually create more tension. So if you address that fear uh, early on, it becomes important. So you get them to check in with how they're feeling. So if they're telling you that their pain is 5 on 10 when they start, how far can they go? Uh, and we're going to use walking again. So the other thing that's important about the walking is you want them not to start off on a hill or in the woods where it's uneven. You want a surface that is straight, no hills, no rocks. It's going to be either a pavement or the side of the road. And you're going to get them to say, okay, my pain is at 5 and 10. How far can I go before it starts to go up to a 6 or 7? And that might be 2 minutes. That might be 5 minutes. That might be 10 minutes. Whatever the time is that they're telling you initially, what you want, and you can take an average of 3 as well. It doesn't matter. I tend to just take the first time. But so if they say, look, at 10 minutes, I start to feel that pain go up, then a safe amount of time for them to start is five, five minutes. So they're going to go two and a half minutes up, two and a half minutes back. And they might do that three times a day or twice a day. They can also do this on a treadmill as well. But it's important if they're on the treadmill that they're looking ahead, they're not looking down. So that's really, really important. Hopefully that's helpful. But the exercise piece just seems to over and over again, that movement piece seems to be so important for patients. What it does as well for patients with chronic pain is it shifts them from a pain focus to a function focus. I also use some of the primitive, you know, so the part of the brain that's driving this obviously is our limbic system. So that is the fight, flight, or freeze, that survival response. That part of our brain evolutionary wise is the oldest part of our brain. So when we think about human survival, It's important that humans are connected, but they're also moving. Otherwise, we get left behind. And if you got left behind, that meant that you could get eaten by predators. 
So that is how simple it gets. In fact, what happens when patients stop moving is their pain often gets worse. It gets much more intense. So if you can get the patient in an exercise kind of mode, it allows the brain to actually decompress. But I just want to reinforce that that movement has to be something they want to do that's going to be fun to them, that feels safe to do, and that they start at the right place with a safe amount of time. They're not going to stay at that five minutes. Uh, If they're doing well with that five minutes one or two times a day, uh, and they're not getting intense flare-ups of their pain, then if it's under 10 minutes, just add 30 seconds to that time. So it's a very gradual progression. Or if uh, it's over 10 minutes, then I get them to add about 10% of the time. So you're really starting to progress the time. So eventually, 20 minutes may be the max they do, but if they did 20 minutes twice a day, that is huge. And so our body needs to be moving. So other interventions that were felt to benefit and likely the benefit likely to exceed the harm included the uh, injection of intraarticular corticosteroids. So when we look at the knees, for example, or for shoulders, it can be very uh, beneficial. Now, obviously, the potential adverse effect was the risk of infection. The efficacy for knee osteoarthritis peaked around one to two weeks, but they also found that the benefit of injections more than four times per year were not felt to be uh, overwhelming. So the other thing I'll just mention about exercise, pedometers uh, really can be quite helpful as well. And I'm just doing a taper with a patient right now, and um, she's been wearing a pedometer now for a long time. Uh, Someone suggested that she try to get up to 5,000 steps a day. And that's another way you can actually look at flare-ups as well. So how many steps are they doing? So that would be an excellent tool, actually, that people could use to measure how far they can go and without flaring up and then maybe cutting that timing down. So what I might have done with her is to say, okay, let's see what your pain is like when you start. How far can you go? So you want to look at your steps. So it looks like when you get to 2,000 that you start to increase your pain. So you can actually cut that time in half. So 1,000 steps once or twice a day may be a really good place to start, making sure that they're not getting into that pain tuck. Yeah, so pedometers can be very helpful as well. And they also looked at topical NSAIDs. We did talk about that in the chronic low back pain. So the data seems to be beneficial. Uh, There was no specific type of anti-inflammatory. What was important is that you didn't take the oral anti-inflammatory and the topical together. There is absorption with the topical. So and then you look at other therapies like benefit may not may not exceed harms in some patients. So there are a few patients. So this is where they looked at oral NSAIDs. They also looked at diloxetine. They did not find any benefit uh, with acetaminophen, but here is the interesting thing about acetaminophen. Now, mind you, the studies were done more in acute pain, and this was the PACE trial that I think we've talked about in previous podcasts. That study has not been replicated, but what we need to understand is that there are some patients who do benefit from acetaminophen. It's like all these therapies. There are patients that do benefit. What's beautiful about acetaminophen is that the safety profile is much better. What happened with the PACE trial, which was a trial that looked at uh, over 1,600 patients, is that the acetaminophen was not introduced into the management of acute pain until 10 days into the injury. So it really is unfair that we've kind of thrown it out with the baby in the bathwater. I do feel that there are patients who could benefit. Now, here's a little pearl that I have found, is that for some patients, 
they tend to do better with the short-acting acetaminophen versus the long-acting acetaminophen. So sometimes you have to kind of explore that with patients. When they looked at osteoarthritis and opioids is that the harms likely exceeded the benefit. And these trials did not look at anything longer than 12 weeks. The unclear benefit included glucosamide, chondroitin, as well as hyaluronic acid, which is injected into the joint. So there can be some reactions there. So the benefit of that would be unclear. So how did that look in their fancy graphs, which I think are pretty cool? Uh, and these are great to show patients as well. So if I look at exercise, for every 100 people that you can get on an exercise program, and remember, we're trying to set patients up for success. That's why it's very specific how you help patients get active. So the important thing is coming back to that safety, right? Safe activity, a safe amount of time address pain protective behaviors. So for every 100 people that you could get on an exercise program, 54 would get benefit. Only six did not get benefit. For every 100 people that you tried interarticular steroids, 30 got benefit and 30 did not. Just kind of working through the different uh, treatments. So if we look at opioids, for every 100 people that were put on an opiate analgesic, six people got benefit, but 54 did not. It is something that you can help your patient kind of work through. Now, what's really interesting is that there is a great little tool that you can access on their webpage, which is CFP Plus, and a very interactive version that you can use with patients can be found at www.pain-calculator.com. And I've used this, and it's really interesting. So when you're trying to help patients understand the value of a certain intervention, you can actually take the patient through that and say, look, this is what we expect that you'll get benefit, how much benefit you'll actually get from this particular intervention or activity. I just want to tell you to check out that article. It's very, very useful. It's very interesting. It's in the Canadian Family Physician, March 2020. Very, very short and sweet, which is what we love. And these are the Peer Simplified Decision Aid tools. So we're going to stop there. Thanks for listening, and we'll be in touch hopefully soon. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.